Hello, welcome to Moms Changing the World. This is your host, Akua Walker, Child Development Nurse Practitioner and CEO, Chief Encouragement Officer, introducing the new podcast, which is the place for moms to find encouragement, hope, and inspiration, where we're supporting moms in the trenches of motherhood. You will receive practical tips and strategies to address the developmental needs of your children with a positive parenting perspective in mind. Here at Moms Changing the World, we are moms on the journey of changing the world, one child at a time, one day at a time. part two of a two-part interview with education professor Mari Gray. She is the married mother of four sons, who is also a professor of education at California State East Bay. In her role there, she is also an advocate for reform and disproportionate discipline in California schools. If you haven't already, make sure to listen to part one of our interview where we had a great conversation about starting off as a single mother, advice that she has for new moms, and how she talks to her African-American sons about racism. You'll also find out about a special personalized birthday gift that I gave to her firstborn son. Listen in on part two. That's great. So would you say that some of these things that you're talking about as far as trusting the mother voice has been what you've been learning about yourself? Yeah, I I think I, I'm really particular about who I let speak into my life anyway, um, and who can tell me, you know, what, what about any aspect of my life, but particularly around my children, I trust myself. um, And so I've been learning to listen to that voice more and more. I'm also learning that in terms of my kids, because I have four black boys, that I'm a mother bear and a fierce advocate. And, you know, I'm pretty frustrated with society's perceptions of the African-American male child. I've been going, you know, my kids have been in school since, I don't know, 2003 when they entered preschool. So I've been doing this for, what, 17 years. And Kyle, my oldest, is 20. And so all along, I've, you know, kind of been the person who had to advocate on behalf of her, often very big for his age, often very smart and outspoken. African-American male child. And so that has often put me in what is an uncomfortable position with whether it's a preschool or a elementary school, middle school, high school. I've, I've often had to just have really tough conversations with other educational leaders about my child. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I had one principal tell me that she found me intimidating. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, wow, I'm, I don't think I'm an intimidating personality. Most people find me nice, but if you want me to roll over and let you do whatever you want with my kid, that's intimidating because that's when you'll see the, the amount of love I have for him and the unwillingness I, I have to let you 
put him in an uncomfortable, difficult, inequitable situation because you don't like black kids or you don't like smart black kids or because you think he should whatever. So I've had to do a lot of that. But I'm also learning I need, especially during COVID, a lot of time, you know, time apart, time to think and process and be away from children. You know, they're, they're, they have bedtimes. <laughs> and so then that's where we sit. There are times when I say, I don't like kids after 730. I don't like kids after 930. And so that, you'll hear that in my house. They know I love them, but that's like, it's your bedtime. That's right. You, it's 830. You are we all have our limit. <laughs> yeah, they know. They know. Sure, sure. So, you know, that kind of transitions us nicely into talking about the education system, um, mm-hmm. you know, which you have some particular insight into. And I'm you know, curious what you would say to, you know, moms who maybe don't have a, a degree in education, you know, or who aren't administrators and don't have that background, right, in understanding the bigger systems at play when it comes to mm-hmm. you know, their child's education. You know, what, how would you advise, you know, moms to step in there to understand what's going on and then to be that mama bear, you know, that you've learned to be? Yeah, so I think one of the things I learned with my oldest was to believe him when he said things were happening. Yeah. Like, we often don't believe our children. And this, I think this, this sounds like a conspiracy theory when I say it out loud, but I don't think the system wants us to believe our kids. Mm-hmm. They don't want us to listen to our black and brown children when they say XYZ treats me differently. And it's really hard to prove racism or you know gender bias or racialized gender bias because you know you have the confluence of two things the male gender um, and then male of color um so you know they they're the ones who oftentimes get in more trouble like all the research shows you know black and brown kids get more trouble male and particularly black and brown male kids so i would say um, i would listen to my kid and trust them ask them why does he feel that way because that's when they start to give you these concrete examples and that's the kind of conversation that you can have with a teacher. And so hopefully their teacher is reflective, you know. So whenever my child is telling me something, I go back to the teacher and I say, you know, I request a meeting. And the meeting lets them know that we care about our kid because they assume that we're not coming to school on behalf of our children. And they expect you not to come to school. And they certainly don't expect you to come and meet with them. And so when you meet with them face-to-face, then your child is protected and advocated for, and they're much more careful going forward with the child because they don't want to meet with you uh, regularly to have to defend their their unfair practices if that's what's happening. And and also they can be a great partner because they, you know, I don't want to make it seem like they're, you know, it's always an oppositional relationship because oftentimes you can have a very a strong partnership like I do with some of my son's teachers, depending on which school they're at or which teacher it is. And so I just, I would say going to school, making sure that they, you're visible, they know your name, they know I'm the mother of such and such, listening to your child, sharing specific examples of what the concerns are and asking them, how can we make this right? You know, how can we fix this? Because oftentimes, and I'm, I'm writing an article that says this, that there's this thing called atonement. The, when children um, get in trouble at school, they're often expected to atone for their misbehavior. They're supposed to identify the problem, 
behavior that they have engaged in and they're supposed to do some sort of penance and it's often some kind of punishment. But when teachers contribute to that behavior, there's often nothing that they're expected to do. So the child takes all of the burden for that behavior. And we have a real unfair system for black and brown boys of color, black and brown boys particularly, but often happens to black girls too, especially chocolate black girls, right? Where they have to do all of this work to make, to come, you know, contort themselves to fit into this system and then, and to make amends with the teacher whenever there's a conflict. Um, and we have to teach the teachers that that is not the responsible of a child, responsibility of a child. Um, that's too much on them and it breaks them. It, it destroys trust in um, educators. It destroys trust in education. Um, it makes them uncomfortable at school. It's a painful process. Sure, sure. And I think I, yeah, I've been fortunate to have, you know, good partnerships with my children's teachers. You know, they are in a, um, you know, private school at this time. And we have been very blessed by that, you know, private kind of Christian school upbringing for them. And, you know, we're in a community where we are also looking at the public school, you know, potentially at some point. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we are very, we want to be very aware and very mindful of, um, you know, kind of what's happening in education as a whole around us, you know, not just in our child's school. So how do we, you know, as parents stay informed with, you know, what's going on in our local school district and in this day, you know, what is going on to correct some, acknowledge and atone for some of the, you know, injustices that have been really systematically implemented towards black and brown children? Yeah, I think that that's a great question. I think there are like four levels of becoming aware, right? One is you become aware through your relationship with the teacher. So hopefully, like you have, like you described, you have this positive relationship with the teacher, where they're sending newsletters home, or you're communicating via email or phone call or after school and drop off or pick up. So my husband does all the pickup. And so he constantly gets the conversation, you know, what happened at the end of the day. Um, I do the drop off and so I get less of that in the morning. But So they see us visibly, right? Then there's the principal level. The principal is probably providing some kind of auto dialer information. Maybe they're putting stuff on a bulletin board. Maybe there's a newsletter or a website at the school. They should have a website for the school. And they hopefully your teacher also has a website or a page on that um, where she updates the classroom, he or she. There's district level information. So there, you know, your school board, your board of trustees will likely have a meeting at least once a month, sometimes two, maybe on a Tuesday and Thursday for a couple hours where they'll publish maybe 24 to 72 hours in advance what the agenda of the school board is. And so you can see what issues are coming up and what issues you're interested in. The school has opportunities for you to get involved as well. That will be the fourth layer, and the district does as well. So there are parent-teacher organizations, there are parent-teacher associations. There is a site council at your school, which is a group of parents who kind of advise the school around, usually around how to distribute funds equitably um, in alignment with the school's vision. Um, If you're a parent whose child is still acquiring English as a second language, maybe a third or fourth, because many of our families are multilingual, trilingual, they might have an ELAC, English Language Advisory Committee, um, at the school site. So they have 
you know, so there are these, they have it at the site level and at the district office level. So just check into those ways. And I, I'm the kind of parent where I work a hundred miles away from my child's school. So I do small things like I can't possibly be at every single meeting, but I might volunteer in the classroom. So if there's a field trip, my school, my son's school, they are really good about publishing the entire calendar for the year. So now I can put every field trip on my calendar. I know all the different activities they're going to have. And so I plan my days, my, my actual calendar, my syllabus around when I want to be available to my sons. So I go on field trips. And so they know who Mrs. Gray is. So just, you know, and the kids like when mommy goes on field trips, you know. And so then you get to see what, what is the classroom like. That was one of the ways where I could learn really quickly and have a meeting when I was in the meeting um, with my son's teacher. I could learn what it felt like to be with that group of students. I learned all the kids' personalities because I had been on so many field trips with them over the years because they stayed with the same group of kids. Um, at my son's school, it's pretty small. And I, I think it really helps if you can volunteer or participate in some small way. Yeah, I really looked at volunteering as an opportunity to, like you said, be involved and show the, the, your child and the school that you're invested, mm-hmm. you know, in the child's education. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I totally very much agree with that. And I also feel like it's kind of also my responsibility to use those opportunities to do the field trips, but also to do some of the education around, you know, my culture and right. identity because it, you know, being from you know Ghana and West Africa, I know as an immigrant, I don't, I didn't get very much you know education in the classroom about that, right? right? And how could I, unless my mom you know came into the class or she brought some of those things or those foods or right. did a presentation, and so she definitely passed that on to me in that I know that nobody else is going to teach my child or teach the, my child's friends about Ghana or about West Africa right. or about African American, you know heroes and sheroes, right? In in the same mm. way that I can. So I have That's tried right. to be deliberate about presenting and sharing, you know, our family story, you know, being as she's one of the few, you know, brown uh, or black kids in, you know, her class, both my girls. And so they know that mommy will come or and do her best to come at least, you know, once or twice in the year and share some mm-hmm. aspect of our culture so that at least her class or her friends you know, we'll, we'll know and we'll have been exposed to some of the amazing things about, you know, her culture and, you know, African and African-American diaspora in some way. You know, that is how I got into genealogy. So exactly that way. So there, you said two things I really want to respond to. One is the storybook or the cultural sharing. So absolutely. One of the things that one of my girlfriends here in town does is she uh, has, her family is Cuban and African-American. And so she wanted, because their, their school was the, well, we have several now, but we, it was the school where you, it was a bilingual school. And a lot of the children didn't realize that her kids too were from a Latin American and um, Spanish speaking background because they were black. Um, and so she came in and started to teach the school, uh, the children of the school about Cuban heritage. And, and so that's where I brought in, I realized that it was so important for me to start to bring in history and, and Black history and diasporic history. So for um, Black History Month, I read to the class and then I started reading 
you know, just as needed. And unfortunately, COVID, I couldn't continue, but it was neat. I got to go in a couple of times this year before COVID happened. And then again, how I got into genealogy was because my son was at the bilingual immersion school and they asked everyone to tell their story of immigration, which is really, you know, flat-footed kind of, or, or maybe not flat-footed, but not a good question to ask when you have African-American children, right? Because we don't have an immigration story in the same way. We have an abduction story. And so in trying to provide my child with enough of a history to be able to share with the class and be proud of, we started to look into it. And we were so lucky because my father-in-law happened to come to town, I think, as my son was doing this project. So I still have the video recording of my son interviewing his grandfather about family history. And, um, and that, you know, kind of spurred this, this interest in genealogy. And he was maybe in second or third grade, and now he's going into eighth grade. So since that time, I've been interested. But I think you're right. If you don't teach the history to your child and to their classmates, because with, if the classmates don't know, it doesn't often, it, it's not enough of a um, support to the child when they're in school, they can feel very marginalized. If their peers also know, that then becomes this kind of rich education for everybody. Lovely. So understanding that uh, a lot of the issues that we're talking about are, you know, no no school is immune, right? Public or private Mm -hmm. or, you know, parochial or or mainstream. You know, I, I start to think about what are the solutions? What are the answers to changing these systematic you know, challenges because in California, especially that's, you know, where I've grown up. That's what I know. But like you said, the racism can be very subtle, you know, in some places mm-hmm. where it might be more overt, you know, here in California, you know, it's, it's, it can be very under the surface. It can be very on that kind of micro level. And especially for children who are just learning developmentally, you know, how to pick up on social cues, you know, mm-hmm. um, and who you know, may not be as nuanced, you know, I, I certainly don't expect children to, to pick up on a lot of it. I know I did not until I was, you know, high yeah. school, college, beyond college. Mm-hmm. So when we think about solutions and you've, you know, done some research and some work looking into these, you know, larger questions, you know, where are the solutions? How can we fix this? That's a hard question. Uh- um, because I think the solution isn't isn't one that is going to make most people comfortable. I think one of the solutions I think we're starting to get to as a nation is the acknowledgement, right? It's just the identification, recognition, acknowledgement that we are an unjust society, that we're a racist society, we're a homophobic society, we're a classist society, you know, in all the ways you can pick any social location we're not kind, right? And so I think that's part of it is the recognition. And then I think talking about it, because it, it, you know, we all have been guilty in some way of participating in marginalization of another community, right? So whereas white Americans are responsible for racism, I think straight people are responsible for heteronormativity and, and the cruelty that we've perpetrated against people who aren't heterosexual, so trans people and gay people. And I think that we have some reflection to do about how we can make this a more equitable world for people in that community, right? I think we also have some reading we can be doing. But then there's the like action, 
right? So what are you going to do about it now that you know? And so there's individual actions and there's systemic actions. And so when you think about individual actions, so the individual action is the awareness. The systemic action is how do I create a just system? So when it, for me in educational leadership, it's about like hiring and culture and climate and just opportunity. And so there are like all these different ways, right, that we can go about that. So it could be if you're looking at staffing, hiring people, being aware of your biases as an or- organization and putting things into practice that will make sure that your hiring decisions are non-biased, right? So it could be making sure that people's resumes don't have names or don't have certain things on them, right? That would be identifiers that people use to discriminate. It could be interview questions that are unbiased or, or that it could be how you rank and, and rate your interviewees who come in, come through the system, you know, and, and for an interview, because I know that people often say things about fit, you know, they fit here. And that often is code for they're like us. They're white. Yeah. They're like us. And oftentimes they're the same race, same class, same religion, uh, speak the same language. You know, they look like us in some way. That's, that's a good one to say like us. So I think that's a systemic approach that you can start to take in. It's individual people working as a system to create equity for others. I think the hardest part, though, has been like the talking about it because we really have to fight against this belief, this color muteness, this color blindness that says, if we don't talk about it, then we won't perpetrate it. And actually, it's the opposite. By not talking about it, we, we lack the skills to talk about mm-hmm. inequities like racism, homophobia, classism, ableism, and all those things, right? So we have to get really good at talking about these issues and have a certain kind of humility, a cultural humility to acknowledge when we've done something when we're wrong, right? So like say, oh, I didn't know that. I'm sorry. I apologize. And then I'll I'll do better in this way. And then really commit to doing that and educating ourselves. I think that, like that, that would fix stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. But it's the inability to talk about things, inability to recognize our wrongdoing or how we've hurt or offended or you know, marginalized whole classes of people that has made us not able to move forward as a society. And if you haven't read a book about, about how to do this, there's a really good book. I'm just finishing it up. It's called The Color of Law. It's written by this, um, I think he's a lawyer. His name is Richard Rothstein. And I guess he's from the Bay Area. Yeah, because it says he is uh, a senior fellow at the Haas Institute at UC Berkeley. Um, It's just one of the books I was reading, but he goes through this whole thing about housing discrimination, like housing segregation, how that led to all these inequitable other outcomes. And at the end, he talks about reparations and reparations and why reparations, the R word. See, we don't want to talk about that. Mm -hmm. Reparations about repair. Like you messed up, you, you know, you acknowledge it, you start to put systems and structures in place to, you know, repair that. But then there are also kind of economic reparations and social, you know, different ways we can provide reparations for folks who have been subjected to inequality over generations. And that's this book and then The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. He also talks about it. So if you want to have an idea of like what we could do as a society once we go through those hard conversations, like how could we restore the communities that we've harmed? These are some hard talks. And I think that is like you have to go through all the conversation about recognition 
And then maybe you'll be willing to talk about, you know, the reparations steps. Yeah. Uh, you've yeah, hit on some great points in terms of how it just begins with the conversations. Like you said, now, because of all that we kind of witnessed and we can't deny it uh, as a society anymore, we can learn, you know, how to talk about it on a personal level, how to talk about it in a community level, how to talk mm-hmm. about it and approach it with you know, our children, with teachers, mm-hmm. with other community leaders. It begins with that conversation. Uh, and I think we can be intimidated, like you said, and we can be uncomfortable with the idea of bringing up these hard topics, but we have to start somewhere. And so I appreciate you know, having some of these books as resources and Humility is the other powerful word, the H word, that we all have a place of humility that we need to come from or be willing to, you know, go to if mm-hmm. any of this is going to get better you know, for our children, for the next generation. That's Moving right. Forward. Yeah, thank you for sharing all of those. And I think as we kind of wrap up this conversation, specific just a little bit I think on the police aspect of it because I think that and the discipline aspect because in you know in your work you look specifically at that mm-hmm. you know is there anything that either we as parents can do with our children or um, we as you know just advocates and mama bears you know uniting can do on that ground specifically yeah it's it's Yes. <laughs> so the first answer is yes. Yeah. Um, in my community, I'll give you an example of uh, what not to do. So in my community, not only do we have a school resource officer or several, we also have their, they approve funding for you know, drug sniffing dogs. And so we have this whole kind of carceral influence coming in where we feel like, you know, now the kids are doing drugs. We have to drug sniff and they're bringing drugs to school. We have to drug sniff and we also have to have these police officers. And it's, you know, the kids are, goodness, we, we don't need that for kids. And so the opposite of that is, um, so you asked me, what could we do differently? I think that one of the things that parents could absolutely do is begin to ask, what is the purpose of policing in schools? And my community started off as um, part of a home visit program where they're really dealing with truancy. And it just kind of uh, evolved over time where you see the um, law enforcement officer taking up more and more responsibilities that have to do with that are really administrative tasks that school principals and other professionals have been hired for and trained to do. And so I think parents can ask that question. They can also figure out how much the school district is spending on those, you know, policing. You know, what's, you know, what does it cost? What's your, what does your police officer cost or your police force cost? Because some districts have that. And then figure out what the Memorandum of Understanding, MOU, says. Like, what is the understanding between the district and the school? Like, what are the, what's the extent to which the police are involved in the school? Are they there just to do, you know, school shooter drills, which is, whoa, already a whole other thing, right? Mm-hmm. Are they there for, you know, in case there's some kind of, do they call, you know, take a, come to campus in response to a call for service? Are they there just all the time? You know, are they doing, you know, drug is, it's called DARE, Drug Awareness and Resistance Education. So kind of understanding what, like, the role of policing is in their community, how entrenched is it in the community, 
what what activities they're engaged in, what the purpose is. And then I think the other thing is we should all know that the, uh, the superintendent of education, Tony Thurman, has convened a panel of experts who are studying school-based policing. And they had a meeting just this past week. I didn't get to watch the video yet, but it's on Facebook if you type in superintendent of education, Tony Thurman, with T-H-U-R-M-O-N-D, or even probably if you go to his website, but I know it's on Facebook, uh, you can watch the videos from the last two sessions. And there the experts are sharing what we know so far about school-based policing. And unfortunately, the state of California had not been studying it. Mm. It had not been, there was no kind of systematic investigation of it. And so kind of keep up with those conversations and then put the pressure on your school boards. Parents are the, you know, you vote them in, you vote them out, you tell them what you care about. In our community, uh, we have a school board member who is a representative of a certain, like they have boundaries, so certain homes within a certain boundary. And so I'm in boundary, I think, five or something. So my school board member is like school board number board member number five. And oftentimes they will, they have an email address or a phone number. And it doesn't always even have to be your representative, just one of them. And so you can contact them about what's going on and in your, you know, what your concerns are around policing. And so mine knows, for example, how I feel about policing and I'm directing her to the Facebook and I'm directing her to my research and, mm-hmm. and I'm really asking questions and I have been for a while, but now I feel like more empowered to ask questions about policing in our community because before there were just a lot of other parents in our community who were very like pro-policing, like, yeah, we don't make sure our kids are safe in school. And that was like kind of the mantra, like school safety, please keep schools safe. And it was like safe for home. Mm-hmm. Certainly not safe for the African-American kids. Mm-hmm. It's certainly not safe for the LGBTQ kids. It wasn't for poor kids. It wasn't for Spanish-speaking kids. So it was safe for a small class of kids. And even the, you know, there's a report out by West Ed. It's maybe two, three years old about policing in schools. It comes out of the Healthy Kids Survey. But ask, you know, you can even ask, what does our Healthy Kids Survey say about policing? Because that's one of the the questions that's asked on the Healthy Kids Survey. So there's just a lot. You can ask questions. And then that's when you, when you ask questions, people will say, oh, I don't know. And so then you say, can you tell me at the next meeting? They've got to do the research. And sometimes in doing that research, they learn so much. And, and you can have a conversation about it. That's wonderful. Yeah, and just in talking with you today, I think I already feel better about kind of the, the work that's being done to really Mm -hmm. understand what's going on when it comes to the racial inequities in California in particular, but really in our country as a whole. And Mm -hmm. I also feel like there are things that we can do as parents to make ourselves aware to whatever time and level of involvement we feel comfortable with, whether it's in the classroom, to school board, to district level, to super, you know, state level, like wherever we feel comfortable, we can right. start, you know, ask questions that help that conversation along for our schools and our children. And our children really need us to. I think that's the other piece of, of this that's really important, that they cannot advocate for themselves, you know, mm-hmm. on these matters. And they rely on us to really be their voice. And so I thank you for the reminder to really listen to them because they see what's going on, you know, every day, day in and day out in ways that we don't. 
And from there, we can gain that insight that helps, you know, give us the, the direction that we need to go as parents to really be their voice because they can't be their own voice in situations like this. And like you said, the burden should not be placed on them too. Right, right. Right. Well, was there, on the kind of education front, was there anything else, any last words you wanted to, to share? Um, no, I think we, we talked about a lot of things. Yeah. This has been super helpful for me. I really, um, you you can go in overwhelmed, you know, when we think about what's going on in this time, especially since we're also kind of weary of the whole sheltering in place and reopening and in California, possible, you know, increase again in some of our numbers. And so this might be the, the other thing is, you know, that there's a lot of anxiety producing things going on right now. And Mm. so, that kind of leads us nicely into, you know, the, the last question I like to ask is about self-care. You know, how mm-hmm. can we take care of ourselves um, as mothers who are trying to, you know, carry multiple burdens and baskets, you know, in addition to just getting our kids fed and clean and hopefully, you know, res- polite, right? I mean, there's so many things that we're mm-hmm. juggling. And now we also have this increased kind of, you know, intensity around education and racial, you know, justices. So how can we take care of ourselves? How can we help ourselves when there's anxiety around these issues? And what can we do to fuel ourselves and keep going? That's a good question, because I will say that at the beginning of the pandemic, I felt a lot of anxiety. I actually talked to my pastor about it. I was feeling really anxious and afraid. I was terrified of the virus. And I think a lot of people were, which is why we as a state were willing to like hunker down. And so my spiritual practice as a Christian is to read the Bible and to pray. And so that was really helpful was just to remember who my God is. Remember that no matter what happens to me, should even should I die and leave my kids, which I would hate to have happen, um, that he's got everything. So I trust God. And that's been like the core of my life and how I've made a lot of decisions is I trust God. And so I think that's, that brings me a lot of peace. I think the other things that I would say in terms of self-care and is to find joy in your day. There are multiple times in my day where I find joy. Like, so this morning I found joy in going on a hike with my kids. We went on a socially distanced hike with a friend outside on a very kind of empty pathway for a couple of hours. And that was just really beautiful to see the water, to see my kids running. My, my friend even mentioned, her name's Jessica. She mentioned how joyful the kids were. And she said, you know, something like, oh, my son's other friends, you know, grumble and complain. And I'm thinking my kids are so happy to be outside. I know. <laughs> <laughs> With another person because they have, like, you want to talk about sheltering in a place. My kids cannot go to any store and I have bought them masks and they also have a you know what is that screen thing that i the plastic yeah, the shield, face shield. The, yeah. the face shields there on order so they just it has their names on them and everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah i'm a little bit you know uh, neurotic about their health but for good reasons right because i love them and i think one of the things that happens with women during this time is that we get overwhelmed with trying to do it all And so one of the things that has really helped me out in my life and my marriage is that I do not try to do all the housework 
and everything myself. My kids have chores. So my, to the best of their ability. So if they're little, you can't. And so then it becomes the question with you and your husband. And I would strongly encourage every married woman um, or partnered woman, however you live, if you have some other people in the house, is to divide up the responsibilities so that you're not doing all the work. And they don't know this, but I don't have any chores. So they do the bathrooms, they do the kitchen. My husband does the laundry. That's all the house. I I was like, wait a minute, I don't even do laundry. This is good, but I do cook. Yeah. And so that's one of the ways that I show my love to my family um, and try to care for them and their health. But also things that are like things, self-care can be a lot of things. For me, it's resting. Mm -hmm. So I took a nap this afternoon. It's the yoga practice that I do with my girlfriend once a week. She's really not my girlfriend because we're not like that, but she's someone I wish were my girlfriend. But there's a, um, a gal who provides yoga to women of color once a week. It's free. Um, she does take donations. Reading, reading, I love to read. Eating healthy. Going to the doctor, girlfriend. Go to the doctor. Yeah. I just want to say that to all the people. Go to the doctor. If you have health care, go to the doctor. Get your annual, everything that's annual. Your dental, your breast checkup, your uh, pap smear, everything that your physical go. And then if they give you medications, take them. They give you a health plan, do it. Laugh. Talk to friends and family. Uh, those are all my like uh, self-care things. And I, I certainly have things I'm working on. I'm working on my health, my physical health, like getting my body moving and putting the things into it and drinking lots of water mm-hmm. and getting enough rest. Um, but just, and as much as you can find some things and set some goals and do those things and then be kind to yourself when you don't do everything that you plan, because we always over plan. I love it. You know, finding joy every day, even in, like you said, Mm -hmm. in like nature, getting outside, Mm -hmm. like you said, you know, we, I think in this, I know I have learn to really appreciate the little things, you know, mm-hmm. getting that fresh air outside the house, mm-hmm. you know, um, and like you said, you know, just getting to see another friend in person, you know, even if it's with a mask and some social distance can just bring so much, you know, joy and so much connection, you know, that, that it's hard to get all the time through the technology, but definitely thankful for, thankful for it. And yes, divide and conquer. I think that has right. to be a motto. <laughs> and even even if you know you're you don't have a spouse, like you said, I think children um, benefit. We you know research points to how children benefit from learning how to do chores and self care from a young age. So even if they are younger, you they help you do a chore, right? And then they feel like they can do right. things that they can contribute to the household. That they are important and they are needed. And they might grumble and they might not like it, but it's teaching life skills. And so thank you right. for the reminder to, to not underestimate the power of, you know, some kind of family contribution or, um, you know, teamwork to, to make the family dream work. So I love mm-hmm. it. I love it. Thank you. Great. Well, I could talk to you till the cows come home, as you know. Um, and as we are wrapping up on time, I just, yeah, thank you so much for, you know, all the rich you know, advice and things you've given us to think about, um, especially in these times. And I hope we can do it again. 
Yeah, it was a lot of fun. You're a good uh, listener and you're a good person to talk to. You always have been. Awesome. Thanks so much. All right. You're welcome. That was the conclusion of the interview with Professor Mari Gray. I wanted to share an update since recording this over the summer. After recording this interview with Mari, I was inspired to reach out to the leadership at my children's school by way of sending an email to the principal and the head of schools at our campus. I first thank them for the hard work that they were doing to prepare the school, the campus, and children and parents for distance learning and for the excellent communication they had shown all summer long by emailing and including parents in the process every step of the way. Then I asked what the school was planning to do to address some of the race relations and reconciliation process that's needed in order to build and repair some of the complicated layers of issues related to race. I got an almost immediate response back letting me know that they appreciated me reaching out to them about the topic and shared that they were already taking steps to prepare the campus and prepare the teachers for addressing this as a priority. Some of the teachers had already gone to special trainings and they were beginning a complete curriculum review to not only look at the representation of black and brown people and people of different ethnicities and cultures, but they were also looking at the representation of women and other minorities. And since I had offered to be a part of this process, she was more than happy to include me in being a parent voice for this reform moving forward. And I've already begun an email exchange with one of the curriculum developers for the school. So I just wanted to share, you know, the steps I have taken on this matter by way of encouraging you, just as Mari gave ideas for whatever level you feel comfortable reaching out on. I encourage you to do that today if you haven't already. So whether it's sending an email to your child's teacher or reaching out to the principal or directors or superintendents, or if you're able to attend or even run for school board or PTA leadership or beyond, as long as we all step into asking the hard questions and being willing to take the actions needed to back up our ideas, then we can be the voice that our children need us to be because they can't advocate for themselves. Thank you for whatever part you are able to play in this process. And please let me know how it goes by visiting us on our website or emailing Thanks for listening to Moms Changing the World with host Akua Walker. The information shared on this show is meant for educational purposes only and not intended as a substitute for medical intervention or professional therapy. All views shared on the show are that of the speakers only and do not represent any institution. 
To be a part of the community, visit www.momschangingtheworld.org. There you'll find ways to connect with and support the moms we interview. Join us next time for more encouragement and support to be a mom changing the world, one child at a time, one day at a time. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks for listening.